Chapter 31 Magic and Machine Harbin arrived in the court of Queen Titania of the elves of Argoth. He had been surprised to discover that the island had its own queen. Indeed, he had been surprised to discover that the island was inhabited by more than trees and multicolored slugs. Nothing from his earlier scoutings showed clearings, wood fires, or any of the normal trappings of civilization. But these elves were not normal. They lived in the trees themselves and somehow bent them to their own wills. Great cathedrals of open space had been nurtured in the center of the woods, and the elves made their homes among the branches. The court of Titania was the greatest of those cathedrals, and the banners of green, gold, and white dripped from the branches overhead. Harbin had set down the flight of his ornithopters in a clearing about half a mile away. He was greeted by a small army of elves, dressed in armor made of varnished reeds, and armed with razor-tipped bone spears. Darting among the warrior elves were pixies, small humanoids with dragonfly wings, and behind the lines of elves were centaurs and tree folks, giant-like creatures who looked very much like the forest that surrounded them. Among the armed guard was a single tall elf, almost as tall as Harbin himself. He was dressed in green and white robes that seemed to swirl around him like a cloud. He held his hands out, palms upward. Harbin returned the gesture. In Argivian, the elf said, You are to come with us. No harm will fall upon you while within Titania's power. I am her speaker. The voice was clipped and precise. Another surprise for Harbin. The elves they fought to date had their own language and showed neither the ability to nor the interest in communicating. Only in fighting, tooth and nail, for every piece of land on the island. The raids had begun almost immediately after Harbin's landing and grew in intensity with each passing month. The shore towers were under assault almost immediately, and the work crews were victims to snipers as soon as they entered the forest proper. It had become necessary to clear the land within a mile of each tower, and even that was a difficult operation. Often, the forest itself would begin to grow back unless the brush was regularly cleared and burned. Then came the major assaults of elves, centaurs, and tree folk. There were mass battles against cruelly armed beings who fought with the passion of raging animals. There were animals among them as well. Cougars, wolves, and other wild creatures. At first, Harbin thought the armies drove the animals before them, but he soon realized that elves exerted some measure of control over the mindless creatures, much as the Argivians did over their machines. They would make lightning strikes from the tree line, then fade into the forest once Argivian forces arrived. Those who pursued the elves beneath the canopy of green were ambushed. Battlements surrounded the towers, and stockades of newly hewn lumbers were set up a reasonable distance from the ever-advancing frontier. Heavy, modified ornithopters, now called ornabombers, strafted the jungles to clear it of wildlife and elven raiding parties before the lumbering machines even rolled forward. Slowly, the resources were pulled from the land and poured into making more stockades, battlements, and machines. The losses were horrible, both of men and machines. The Argivians rarely saw their opposition, and then suddenly they appeared. A huge horde of elves, or a flight of pixies, or an army of tree folk. A group of the last had reached one of the shore towers and was shredding supply boats before the Argivians realized the tree folk burned the same as any other tree. One morning, the attack stopped as quickly as they had begun. Seven days later, an elf appeared at the doors of the stockade, unarmed and carrying a scroll. Harbin himself was at the fort and ordered the guards to open the gates and allow him to parley with the elf, but to be ready to shut them should it prove a trap. It was not. The elf extended the scroll, and Harbin took it from her. It was a map to a location a few hundred miles inland. A note attached, in fluid script, stated that if he wished to parlay, he should appear at that location at a certain location in time. Harbin nodded to the messenger. The elf took a step back and turned to go. She hesitated for a moment, 
and Harbin almost swore she was going to say something herself, but she only shook her head and walked back to the tree line. The moment she passed beneath the shadows of those trees, she was gone. The time given was not sufficient to relay word back to Penrigan, and after some concerns, Tonos allowed the young man to go to the meeting, but insisted he take a flight of ornithopters with him. Now the speaker led Harbin beneath the trees and into the court of Titania. He had left two men behind to guard the ornithopters and took two with him. But if the queen violated her word of safe passage, it would matter little whether they were together or apart. They were preceded and followed by pale elven warriors, their faces painted with chalk. The procession was flanked by other races that watched as they marched by. Once, Harbin swore he saw a human face among the crowds, but it was gone and he could not pause to find out. At last, they were led into the great cathedral itself, bathed in green light from the leafy canopy overhead. The ground was firm and even. Much of the land beneath the trees was boggy and uneven, slowing their work even further. A long processional was cleared, flanked by still more elves and pixies, straining to look at the invaders. Near the front were humans dressed in brown robes and hoods. They looked daggers at Harbin as he passed. At the end of the processional was a great dais, its steps rising to a white marble platform that ended in a throne as green as the heart of the forest. Seated on the throne was the queen herself. Her beauty was unearthly. No, Harbin realized. Her very being was unearthly. Her face seemed like a jade mask, narrow and pointed at the chin. Her form was lithe and lean, and if she were to stand, she would be taller than Harbin. She was decked in tendrils and vines, the brilliant yellow-green of new shoots, but her eyes were deep, old, and unfathomable. The speaker motioned for Harbin to remain at the base of the dais and took a position two steps up and to one side of the queen. Titania's face tightened as she regarded Harbin, and the man had the feeling she was mentally peeling away his flesh to get a look at the soul beneath. It was not a pleasant sensation. There was a silence for a moment. Then the queen spoke, and her words were music. Harbin realized her tongue was related to the elven language he had heard before, as chamber music was related to barbarian chants. Her voice transfixed him and held a fire all its own. The speaker said in his clipped tones, I speak for the queen of Titania. Titania speaks for the goddess Gaia, most bountiful and all-powerful. Argoth is under the protection of Gaia and home to her children. You are not welcome here. You should leave. For the soft trills, it was a blunt message. Harbin responded, I bring the welcome of the combined kingdoms of Argoth, Corlys, and Yodia, its king and people. I bring the welcome of the Lord Protector of the Realm, Urza, the Master Artifice. I am Urza's son, Harbin. Speak to me as you would to him. The speaker relayed the message to Titania, and Harbin wondered why the vine-clad woman smiled for a brief instant. Then she spoke again, and the speaker translated. She knows who you are and what you are, he said. She wants to know if you understand what she just said. Harbin took a deep breath. Tell her, I have heard her words, but also tell her that our people will not leave this island. Again, the words were relayed, and Titania's response was short, like a dagger thrust. Then your people will die here, said the speaker. You have despoiled the land and must be punished. That is Gaia's law. If I may, said Harbin, raising an empty hand. Titania should know that my people need the lumber on your shores and the minerals beneath your hills. We are at war against a greater, darker power and need every resource we can muster. The speaker did not even wait to translate this, but merely repeated, She knows who you are 
and what you are. You are not welcome here, and you must leave. Harbin raised his other hand. My father's brother threatens all our land with great machines of mass destruction. Without the lumber and ore to protect ourselves, we will be destroyed. With our destruction, Bishra will find your land and destroy it as well. The speaker translated, and the Queen Titania remained silent on her throne, her face impassive. Harbin had expected a more immediate reaction. Then it occurred to him. Queen Titania was not truly present in this great hall. The beautiful creature before him was a mannequin, a puppet operated from afar. It looked truly alive, but it was nothing but vines and wood. Was the unseen Titania considering his words, or was she busy elsewhere, conferring with advisors? Finally, Titania spoke, and the speaker's face Tyson as he listened. To Harbin, he said, Your enemy has already found our land. He has landed on the western shores with a force as great as your own. Like you, he is already despoiling the land that he touches. It is as I told you, said Harbin. He has great and powerful machines of destruction. And how are they different from your engines of destruction, human? said the speaker, without relaying the message to his queen. Harbin fumed for a moment, then said, Tell your queen that if she allies with us, we can defend her against Mishra. The speaker paused for a moment, then relayed the message. The response was short and guttural, and Harbin did not really need the translation. She says, No, thank you said the speaker diplomatically. Harbin was exacerbated. You do not understand. Unless you ally with us, unless you allow us to harvest some of your resources, Mishra will sweep across your land. Only as an ally can you hope to serve. Harbin was cut off by a long, tremorous outburst from the queen. Her face was filled with anger, and Harbin marveled for a moment at how lifelike the mannequin seemed. The dwarves of the Sardian Mountains were your allies, said the speaker. Where are they now? Harbin was stunned. How do you know of the Sardian dwarves? He blurted. The goddess Gaia knows all. She speaks to Titania, said the speaker. Titania speaks to me. Where are your former allies? I have never heard them called allies, said Harbin, recovering. They were another race that bordered Argive in the mountains. We traded with them for metal and then discovered they were trading with Mishra as well. You killed them, said Titania, in a language clear and understandable to Harbin's ears. Your people killed the Sardian dwarves. Few survive as slaves and exiles, but their mines have been plundered, and their halls now warns for goblins. Is this the fate of your allies? Even in rage, even speaking his own language, her voice was beautiful. Harbin stammered and said, I was only a youth at the time. But, and Yotia, said Titania, your mother is Yotian human. How has that nation fared as an ally? Is not its northern border a sheet of fused sand and black glass? That is not my father's fault, said Harbin hotly. It was Mitra who did that. Titania did not listen. Instead, she tilted her head, as if listening to music that no one could hear. The queen of the elves stiffened in her chair and screamed. Harbin took a step back, along with most of the court. The queen's face was contorted, and Harbin could see parts of her wooden mass splinter as she screamed. Leaves fell from her vine-covered dress, and grassy tendrils spun out of control. She twisted once in her chair, and was still. Harbin was suddenly very much aware of where he was, deep in the heart of unknown territory, 
surrounded by beings who had fought his work since its inception, protected from them only by the word of their monarch, who had just screamed in pain as he yelled at her. Harbin did not turn around, but he imagined every elf, centaur, and pixie in the forested vault was drawing his weapon. But as quick as Titania's attack came on, it passed. The queen stirred and collected herself, and Harbin saw that her green garments were regrowing themselves. Yet, when she looked at him, Harbin saw that her eyes were deep, tired pools, and she suddenly seemed worn and haggard. You and the other invaders stink, she said simply and quietly. You smell of metal and machine oil. Both sides despoil our land, and both sides will be driven out. Argoth is not yours, child of the artificer. It belongs neither to your father nor to his brother. Go now. Tell the other humans this message. Leave now, or be driven from our shores. Titania lowered her head. The speaker said, This audience is over. Harbin wanted to press his point to warn Titania further of the danger of Mishra, but her mannequin was already unraveling, the vines and grasses pulling away from the form, rotting as they separated. Finally, all that lay on the throne was a jade mask. You will be protected as long as you remain within our lands, said the speaker. Now, you must go. Harbin and the other two pilots were escorted from the halls, Harbin walking alongside the speaker. There were so many questions here, so much said and not said. He had failed in that the Argivans needed the wooden ore and he could not get permission, but he knew that permission would never come from this strange queen. What device did she use to animate her puppet? And was she present, even now, watching them? There was another face in the crowd, his face grim and angry. Harbin thought of the brown road men and asked the speaker, There are men here? The speaker nodded, but did not lose a stride. There are, but there are no friends of yours, artifice child. They hate artifacts and all devices and fled to our isle to escape them years ago. Harbin thought for a moment and said, That is how you know about Urza and Misha then. They are refugees from the mainland. The speaker smiled. The druids of the Sitnel came here centuries ago, child of the machine maker. But you said they hated artifacts. Do you think, said the speaker, that yours is the first empire to rely on the tyranny of the machine or the last? When Harbin did not answer, the speaker asked, Why did you bring your flying devices here? The ornithopters, Harbin said. It was the quickest way and it would not harm your precious woods. It was a show of power, said the speaker. Harbin felt embarrassed. The speaker was correct, but after seeing what the queen could do, he did not feel particularly powerful. Yes, it was, said the speaker smoothly. A small show of power. Now, allow us a small show of power in response. They emerged in the glen, where the ornithopters had landed. All five machines were there, as were the two Argivians left behind as guards. There were elvish warriors and more of the brown-cloaked humans, the druids of Sitnal. Observe, said the speaker, and signaled the brown-robed humans. At once, the druids began a chant. It was a low chant, almost felt in the bones more than heard through the ears, and it used the language the speaker had employed when he spoke to Titania. Their voices rose, then fell, then split into separate courses, weaving and interweaving among themselves. The pilots reached for their weapons, but Harbin held up a hand to stop them. None of the elves moved. Then, the ornithopters began to move on their own volition. At first, 
Harbin thought it would be a simple breeze that caught the wings, but their wings began to unfurl to their full limits. As Harbin watched, the poise along the wings ripped from their grommets, and the wires snapped, their sharp twangings punctuating the monk's chants. One of the pilots shouted and ran for his craft, but it was too late. The ornithopters rose like buckling horses, flapping their dying wings against the ground. For a moment, they looked like wounded living birds, then crumbled in on themselves, their stretched in fabric unable to withstand their own sudden animation. Where the ornithopters had been, there were now five piles of broken wood and hide. Already, the elves and druids were beginning to back away, disappearing into the trees. Your show of power? Our show of power, said the speaker. Know that we could have done this once you were in the air, but you are under titanious protection until you leave our lands. You have nothing to fear until you have reached the lands you have despoiled. The speaker smiled, and it was a mean, self-satisfied smile. Have a pleasant walk back, human. And he was gone as well. Misha had moved faster than Ashtoth had assumed. He was gone by the time she arrived in Zegon, gone with the invasion fleet bent on wresting the new land from Urza. Only through personal favors and equally personal threats did Ashtoth gain passage on one of the supply ships following in the wake of his initial attack. She could see the new land before it appeared on the horizon. It was marked by a thick column of smoke that grew as her ship passed through the storms, a dark beacon calling her forward. The shore was blackened by wreckage of burned stumps jetting from the ground like rotted teeth. Already, the tree line had been pushed nearly to the horizon, and Mishra's factories were already assembled and working full tilt to convert those resources that survived into useful weapons. Ashan moved among the wreckage and discovered signs that the occupation had not gone unopposed. There was a shattered hulk that had been a dragon engine not far from the docks at which she had landed, and she passed an open grave filled with the bodies of transmogrants and what looked like elves. She wanted to seek out Mishra first, but upon landing, thought better of it. Mishra had banished her and might not be overjoyed to see her. Better to check with the hierarchy first. She went looking for Hajar instead. She found him, two miles upshore, trying to unmire a war machine that had sunk axles deep in a swamp. Hajar looked at Ashnot stonily, then nodded. It was a warmer welcome than she had expected. Perhaps the older man was mellowing. You are back, he said shortly. New horizons, new opportunities, she replied. Any chance of getting to see Nibs? She laid her backpack on the ground and hefted a heavy box. I brought presents. Hajar said nothing to her, but turned the bother of extricating the titanic machine over to an underling. He started walking farther up the shore, and Ashnot followed, carrying both box and backpack. Hajar offered to carry neither, and Ashnot noted there was a slight stoop in the old Falaji's shoulders as he moved. The years of watching Mishra's back were finally telling on the lean-faced bodyguard. They arrived at last at a blockhouse, a huge fortress of rough-hewn lumber and unmortared stone. It looked as if this had seen some fighting as well, for the outer walls were scorched by flame. I take it that there have been problems, Ashad said. Hajar nodded. The land is occupied and must be taken inch by inch. Ashad nodded in turn. Any chance of talking with the original owners? A leader of their people appeared here soon after we arrived, said Hajar. A green woman, wrapped in leaves and coiled vines. How did it go? Asked Ashnod, already knowing the answer. Hajar sighed, a small sigh, but a sigh nonetheless. Mishra ordered the dragon engines to set her on fire. She screamed and went up like kindling. Then the attacks began again. How is he? 
she asked as they passed with the heavy gates of the blockhouse. Mishra, I mean. He is, said Ajar, then looked at Ashan. She saw there was a softening in his lean visage. And he is not. You will understand when you see him again. The throne room of the blockhouse was a rough, frontier fair, a rude dais made of slabs of stone, with a captain's chair from one of the ships serving as a throne. It was flanked by two Gixians, one with an artificial arm, the other with a steel plate bolted to his face across the eyes. Hajar remained by the door, and Ashan noted the pecking order had changed in her absence. There was Misha himself. He was thinner and more muscular than he had been when she last had seen him. What mass he retained was now muscles rippling beneath his robes. His hair and beard seemed darker too. Ashan assumed that the older man had at last surrendered to vanity and used some zagoni ointment to hide his age. But his eyes were as alive as they ever had been, as curious and as seeking. Ashan had forgotten that look over the years. He still had the razor-sharp Ankh of Sarinth tucked in his belt, even though that land was in full rebellion. Ashan made a mental note not to mention it, as it still might be a sore point. She set the box down and the pack next to it and prostrated herself before the artifice Kadir. I bring you greetings, O master of the desert, and now master of the sea, she said, rising without waiting for him to command it. I thought I had banished you, said Misha grimly. I said I would have you slain if you were found within my territories again. So you did, most sage and just one, said Ashnod, hewing to the formal modes of address until she could discern Misha's temperament. And if you truly held this land, I would never choose to risk your wrath by appearing before your court. But it seems there is some doubt about that control at the moment, and I offer my aid to make this land yours. She looked at Misha's face, seeking some smile, some recognition that he was glad to see her back. All she saw was a grim fire burning behind his eyes. What offer of aid is this? He said. I have wandered far off during my extended leave, said Ashad, opening the top of the chest. I have learned many things and found many items that may be of use to you. She pulled a copper's bowl from the chest. I believe I can use this simple silex to determine our future, she told him with a smile, holding it aloft. Misha did not shift position as he regarded Ashot and her gift. You bring me metal dishes, he said. Have you become a coppersmith in your absence? Ashot lowered the bowl, disappointed. More than just a serving dish, most powerful one. There are forces in the world beyond those of our mere machines. I have endeavored to master those forces. Magic, interrupted Mishra. Pardon? asked Ashnod, startled. Magic, repeated the Kadir, like the fools of the Union of Teresia City believed in. For want of a better word. Magic, he said a third time, does not exist. It is all tricks, done with smokes, mirrors, and other devices. I have done such tricks, so have you, to fool the credulous. Magic is not real. Do not bother me with such trivialities. Most comprehending one, said Ashad. I do not think that the power of the scholars of the ivory towers is trivial. Misha laughed. It was a sharp, barking laugh that Ashad did not like at all. I thought I would never live to see the day the great and powerful Ashad. Ashad the uncaring, would become a simple trading caravan charlatan, seeking to con her way back into my good graces. Ashad felt her face redden at the rebuke. This was not going the way she had expected at all. She said, 
I can offer some small demonstration. Again, Misha interrupted. Save your demonstrations for the gullible Ashad. I know your patter well, and I have missed it, but I have changed in your absence, even if you have not. He looked at her, long and hard, and Ashad, for the first time in many, many years, wondered what he was thinking. Finally, Misha said, You are welcome to remain with my forces, Ashad, or go as you see fit. I lift your banishment, but know that your actions will be watched. There was a slight bob of his head toward one of the priests. If there is any sign of your betrayal, I will personally turn you into a transmogrant. Am I clear? As glass, said Ashad, frowning. But may we at least speak in less formal surroundings? You will come when I call, said Mishra. Or you will not come at all. You are brilliant in your own way, Ashad. And I am sure that, return to true work, to building artifacts, your talent will blossom again. You may go. Ashot hesitated a moment, and Misha said again, You may go. There was granite in his voice. Ashot bowed again and retreated from the room. Hazar followed her. Well, that went badly enough, she said, then turned to Hajar. Things have gone downhill around here while I was gone. It has been so noted, said Hajar simply. Ashot wanted to ask more to find out how influential the Gixians were, who really ran things behind Misha's throne, when the door behind them opened. The priest with the steel-plated eyes emerged and bowed, slight and perfunctory, before Ashnod. We are interested in your bowl, said the priest. That trivial piece of magic, said Ashnod, raising an eyebrow. Magic your lord does not believe in? The priest bowed again, and Ashnod swore she heard something click and whine as he did so. The Brotherhood is always open to new avenues, and, if they prove true, can present them properly to his most august and serene personage. The bowl, please. I think not, said Ashan. The priest stared at her, if an eyeless thing could be said to stare at anyone. We have been charged with keeping an eye on you, former apprentice. We have Misha's ear, and we can be your best allies in his court. He smiled and every other tooth was missing. Or your worst enemies. The bowl, please. Ashan looked at Ajar and said, Is this the way of the court now, where petty muggins are common in its halls? Ajar did not say anything. Or rather, he looked at the floor beneath them, and his look spoke volumes. I see, Ashan said, and handed over the chest to the priest. Please accept this gift as a token of my appreciation, she said through clenched teeth. May there be someone present to administer aid when you choke on it. The priest took the chest and gave her another toothy smile. We knew you would show wisdom, he said, once the situation was made clear to you. And he was gone, back into Mishra's throne room. Hajar did not say anything after that, but he did not have to. He escorted Ashnod to a tent city where most of the court was camped. She would have a private tent and, as the Kadir had directed, the permission to come and go as she pleased. If she needed anything, she should ask him. And then, he was gone as well. Ashton lowered herself on her bunk and shook her head. She had returned, but it was not the return of the prodigal that she had hoped for. And Hajar was right. Misha was both very much as she remembered him, and very different. She wondered if she should stay, and decided that she should check out where else she could run before bolting.
she pulled her backpack onto the bunk and opened it, pulling the Golgothian silex from its depths, still wrapped in her clothing. Misha had been right about one thing, of course. She had become a coppersmith in the years that she was gone. She had become many other things as well. But she had remained a suspicious enough person to bring the duplicate of her own crafting to present to Misha. It was Ashnot's silex that the priest of Gix now held, while she retained the original. Ashnot ran her finger along the edge of the ancient rune-edged bowl, and the light dimmed slightly around her 